I was recently asked why so many death certificates are needed after someone dies. And the question brought back memories of ordering several after my mom passed away. I don't remember how many I ordered, but I know I took copies to the Social Security office in the bank and sent copies to an insurance company and to a trust that my uncle had set up for his surviving siblings. And a quick Google search suggested that six to 10 should be ordered. Now, ordering death certificates is not something anyone wants to do, but it's something that must be done because it's more important than you might think for someone to be certified as dead. You know, even though we might love to discover that someone we had thought was dead really isn't, such a discovery would cause a lot of problems for a lot of people. Insurance payouts would have to be repaid, inheritance would have to be returned, and I'm sure we've all seen movies about someone coming back from the dead after his or her spouse had remarried. Now, things can get very complicated if someone who was thought to be dead really isn't. You may have read the article in the journal this week. A 76-year-old woman who was declared dead at a hospital in Ecuador astonished her relatives by knocking on her coffin during her wake. And the incident has prompted a government investigation into the hospital. Bella Montoya had been admitted Friday at the hospital with a possible stroke and cardiopulmonary arrest. And when she did not respond to resuscitation, a doctor on duty declared her dead, the ministry said. Gilbert Barbera said his mother was unconscious, unconscious when she was brought to the emergency room, and that a few hours later, a doctor informed him that she was dead and handed over identity documents and a death certificate. The family then brought her to a funeral home and were holding awake later Friday when they started to hear strange sounds. There were about 20 of us there, Barbara said. After about five hours of the wake, the coffin started to make sounds. My mom was wrapped in sheets and hitting the coffin, and when we approached, we could see that she was breathing heavily. Though he and relatives rushed her back to the hospital Friday, she was still in serious condition Monday, and I just read that she passed on Friday. A technical committee has been formed to review how the hospital issues death certificates, the ministry said in a statement. Well, obviously, the doctor was wrong when he declared Bella dead. She was only mostly dead. <laughs> as Miracle Max noted of Wesley and the Princess Bride. And as Max said, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. Well, before someone is certified as dead, you should be absolutely certain they're not even slightly alive. 
And that was especially true in the case of Jesus. If a mistake was made in reporting him as dead, when in fact he had only passed out from the pain or been drugged by the disciples to appear dead, as some have suggested, the gospel would no longer be good news. For if Jesus did not actually die and then literally rise from the dead, we have no Savior. The penalty for sin has not been paid, and we have no hope of our own resurrection. That's why it is imperative that we know for certain that Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago. And that's why, even though they didn't issue death certificates in 33 A.D., John goes to such detail to show Jesus certified as dead. He begins by pointing out that the soldiers knew he was dead in the 19th chapter of John's Gospel. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, Ask Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. It was standard procedure for the Romans to leave crucified criminals on a cross for days. It usually took that long for someone to die, and they were in no hurry to take them down. They wanted the death to take time, and they wanted them to serve as graphic reminders of the terrible consequences of violating Roman law. Often the criminal was left on the cross until he decomposed and fell from the cross or was eaten by vultures and crows. The Jews, however, objected to this practice. They obviously didn't mind the crucifixion part. They were the ones who demanded that Jesus be crucified, but they didn't want bodies hanging around, especially on their holy days. In fact, the Old Testament law demanded that the bodies of criminals be buried the same day they were executed. In Deuteronomy 21, we read, And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The Jews didn't want their land defiled by a body hanging on a tree especially on the Sabbath of Passover week, the highest and holiest of Sabbaths. So they went to Pilate with a request that the three who had been crucified that day be dispatched quickly and disposed of before 6 p.m. when the Sabbath would begin. The way death was hastened for someone on a cross was called quirifragium. His legs were broken with a heavy mallet. 
Now, this was a bit of a compromise for the Romans. They wanted those crucified to suffer, so they wouldn't just put them out of their misery, but they would break their legs. (laughs) By breaking their legs, they not only introduced new trauma, but the victim would then have little, if any, way to support himself other than his outstretched arms. This would constrict his chest and put him through the added agony of slowly suffocating to death. Pilate agreed to this request of the Jews and sent soldiers to break the legs of all three so they would all be dead before sundown. They came to the first man and broke his legs as ordered. They then went past Jesus, possibly seeing no evident signs of life in him, to the third man and broke his legs. They then returned to Jesus and examined him more closely. They found that he was indeed dead, having dismissed his spirit when his work was finished. So while they broke the legs of the two thieves, they did not break Jesus' legs. Now, these were soldiers who were experienced executioners. They knew when someone was dead or not. And they were under orders to break the legs of the men on the crosses to assure that they would all be dead by sundown. If there had been any doubt at all, they would have broken Jesus' legs. But he was dead. And they knew it. Then one of them did something to make it evident to the spectators that Jesus was dead. And one who saw it became a primary witness to the fact that Jesus was indeed dead. Reading on. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. Why the soldier pierced his side, we can't be sure. If he had had doubts about Jesus being dead, he would have broken his legs as commanded. This may have just been the impulsive act of a hardened soldier, one who didn't give a second thought to using whatever weapon he had in his hand, and who perhaps derived a perverted sense of pleasure from mutilating the bodies of his victims. Whatever his reason for doing so, he thrust the spear into Jesus' side, and immediately there came out blood and water. We can't be sure the exact path of the spear or even which side was pierced. But since Jesus was elevated on the cross, it stands to reason that the spear was given an upward thrust, probably entering beneath the ribs and entering the chest cavity. Why the blood and water came out has been debated for centuries from both a theological and a medical perspective. Medically, it's been suggested that the spear pierced Jesus' distended stomach and heart, accounting for the water and the blood. 
or that fluid had built up in his lungs and that's where the water came from. Or, as the most popular theory would suggest, that Jesus' heart had ruptured, that he literally died of a broken heart. Some even insist on that because of prophecy. In Psalm 69, it says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That was obviously a prophecy that was fulfilled on the cross. And the verse that precedes it says, Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. Those who believe that Jesus' heart was physically broken point out that a ruptured heart would allow blood to mingle with the fluid in the pericardium and that the red corpuscles would have likely separated from the serum, causing the flow of blood and water. The bottom line is we have no way to know for sure how it happened. But whatever, whatever the cause physically, almost everyone looks for theological implications in the blood and water. Now, Jesus had referred to himself as the source of living water. And he'd also said that unless we drink his blood, we would have no life in us. Maybe this was a picture of Jesus as the source of eternal life. We also know that both water and blood are symbols of cleansing from sin. So this could be a picture of the cleansing that comes from the one who died on the cross. Others see in the water and blood the two great sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And In his first letter, John stresses the fact that Jesus came by water and blood, which may indicate that both his baptism and his death bear witness to the fact that he is the Son of God. What should we draw from this picture theologically? We can't be sure. Maybe everything. Maybe nothing. But the primary point John seems to be making here is that this flow was witnessed by one whose witness is true. Who this individual was, he doesn't say. But most believe John was that witness. That John actually saw the soldier drive the spear into Jesus' side and that he saw the blood and water flow out. There was no doubt in his mind that Jesus actually died on the cross. The soldiers knew he was dead and he had seen with his own eyes incontrovertible proof that Jesus was dead. Additionally, prophecy had pictured the Messiah as dying, and John certainly witnessed prophecy being fulfilled in the death of Jesus. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. 
Now, we can't be sure which scripture John had in mind when he said, not a bone of him shall be broken. In Psalm 34, David spoke of God's protection of the righteous, and the 20th verse says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Perhaps that is a messianic picture, but there's little else in the psalm to indicate that it is. We do, however, have another picture of bones not being broken in the Old Testament that is definitely messianic, and it has to do with the Passover lamb. In both Exodus 12 and Numbers 9, it is specified that no bones of the Passover lamb were to be broken. And as John the Baptist declared, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb was a type, a picture of the Messiah who was to come. That's why the lamb had to be spotless and without blemish. And John, I believe, found a fulfillment of Scripture in the fact that Jesus' body, though sacrificed to provide the blood necessary for protection against God's judgment, was kept intact. It was kept whole, with no bones broken. He also found fulfillment of Scripture in the fact that Jesus had been pierced. In Zechariah 12.10, we read, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There was obvious fulfillment of part of that picture when Jesus was pierced by the soldier's spear. But mourning pictured in Zechariah would come later. When on the day of Pentecost, Peter would make it clear to the Jews that they had crucified the Son of God. It's recorded in Acts 2, 36 and 37. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What an interesting choice of words to express the grief over what they had done to Jesus. They were pierced to the heart. I find something else extremely interesting in Zechariah. If we jump down to the 13th chapter, the first verse, we read, On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For sin and for impurity. On the day of their bitter weeping over having pierced the only son 
a fountain would be opened in Jerusalem that would bring remedy to sin and impurity. In Acts 2.38, after the Jews cried, brethren, what shall we do? We find Peter saying this, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 3,000 took advantage of that offer and found remedy for their sins in the fountain of Christian baptism. They found cleansing in the water and the blood which flowed from Jesus' side. What about you this morning? Have you confessed your need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ? And have you acknowledged that fact by allowing yourself to be washed in the waters of Christian baptism? If not, I invite you to come forward and express your desire to do both.